I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Matthew today. The Gospel of Matthew, first uh, book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, and uh, find your way to verse 9. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, looking at the uh, Lord's Prayer, or actually, as I would prefer to title it, the Disciples' Prayer. This is Jesus teaching his disciples uh, how to pray, and so we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at principles from how Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray and applying that uh, and exercising those things even in our own lives. We have uh, said or recently have, have gone through a, uh, a process of uh, vision and uh, mission in, in our church family, and we have uh, uh, seen that God has given us a vision as a church uh, to be, uh, well, it's on the front of your worship guide, so we can read that together, that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's our uh, mission. That's what we feel that as a church God has uh, brought us together to do. But we also, uh, in that time, developed a sort of a vision statement. That is how we're going to be that kind of church that we have, uh, that, that we feel that God has called us to be. We're going to do that by knowing God. We're going to do that by helping one another grow as disciples of Jesus. And we're going to do that by going to the nations and to our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, knowing God is often a thing that uh, I think a concept we throw around somewhat flippantly. Uh, that yeah, I, I I know who God is. I've read the Bible, and you know, and and so we're good. I know things about Him, but knowing things about God is drastically different than knowing God personally, right? Knowing uh, not just about Him, but knowing Him, being in that uh, experience kind of relationship with Him. One of the ways that we demonstrate our knowledge of God and even grow in our knowledge of God certainly is through study of His Word, but also in prayer. The great Christian thinker, J.I. Packer, in his uh, classic book, Knowing God, says this, people who know their God are before anything else, people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. Friend, you can know, you can grow in your confidence that you know God, that you are walking in relationship with him as you pray. But often, I don't know that we know how best to pray, how to approach God in prayer. And so over the next three weeks, it's my desire that as we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 specifically, but also the verses surrounding, that we would glean some principles from how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray so that we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, would also pray well. We would pray well. The first aspect of praying well begins in the first couple of verses in our passage today, and that is praying with perspective. Praying with perspective. Praying with a view, uh, not, not primarily to who we are and what we need and what's going on in our lives, but primarily with a view to who God is. To pray well and to pray rightly, we must pray with perspective, Jesus will show us. Specifically, our perspective must be in relation to the person, the holiness and the purposes, not of ourselves, not of our church, not of our family, but the person, the holiness and purposes of God. As we turn our attention to God's word in Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? 
And, and because this is such a familiar passage to us, um, you can read on the screens uh, behind me, or if you're reading from the English Standard Version, you can read out of your own copy of God's Word this morning. Let's read verses 9 through 13 of Matthew chapter 6 out loud together. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for blessing us by speaking to us in your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, who is your word incarnate, whose words we read this morning and every Sunday as we gather together for worship. God, use your word through your son and the word that is written by your Holy Spirit through human authors to teach us, to teach us about you, God, to guide us, to guide us in closeness to you. Lord, teach us to pray this day, we pray with perspective for who you are, your person, your holiness, your purposes in this world, first and foremost. God, bless your servants as we hear from you this morning. Use me, Lord, I pray that I would become invisible, that I would point all of us uh, together corporately to Jesus, your son, and to the relationship of salvation, of rightness with you that we might have uh, by faith in his name. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Be seated, thank you. Matthew chapter 6, this uh, passage in particular comes right in the middle of one of Jesus' most famous sermons in all of the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. And this is in a, a portion where his disciples have, uh, uh, are asking him, uh, uh, or, or he's addressing issues, questions of prayer and how people ought to pray. And here he's giving uh, instruction on how to do that. Similar passages found, parallel passages found in Luke chapter uh, 11, if you wanted to turn there this week and read a similar, a similar passage as well. So how, what does it mean then to pray with perspective? As Jesus has instructed us here in the disciples' prayer, how is it that we are to pray with perspective, with a view to who God is? Well, first we see in verse 9, the first part of verse 9, that we are to pray with a view to the person of God. To pray with a view, with a perspective to the person of God. He is Father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the first part says, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Christian, this morning, do not gloss over this truth as though it were less profound than it sounds. God is our Father. I'm tempted to say that short sentence four different ways to put emphasis on each of the words. God is our Father. God is our Father. God is our Father. God is our Father. The triune, eternal God of the universe exists eternally and relates to us through his three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the person of God to whom we most immediately direct our prayers is the Father. This is who Jesus, when he prays uh, during his earthly ministry, he directs his prayers to the Father. And here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he invites us and his, his disciples to do the same. One person of the triune God, the Son, Here encouraging us, his disciples, to approach with confidence the first person of the Trinity in the same manner as we would our own fathers. 
Understand this, God has always been a father to his people. This is not a New Testament reality. This isn't something that just comes on the scene as Jesus makes his, uh, uh, makes his entry into his earthly ministry. We need look no further than the, just the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. When God speaks through Moses to Pharaoh saying, Let my son go that he may serve me. My son, referring to the people of Israel. God called Israel his own son, his child here in Exodus, which is a pattern that continues throughout the Old Testament. And it's a picture that is completed in Jesus, who is the literal and eternal son of God. But God is not only a father to Israel and to Christ in scripture, but we find that he's a father to all who know and who love him. As Father, God embodies and displays all of the best aspects of our human fathers with perfection, and he has none of their weaknesses. Men, you who are fathers, you know your weaknesses. God has none of them. It is not a coincidence nor an accident that God says he is our father because he has created us, he loves us, he cares for us, he seeks our best, he encourages and exhorts us. We find in scripture that he, like a good father, even disciplines us and all too often saves us from ourselves. And yet we find here that Jesus says our father is heavenly, our father in heaven. Which tells us that he is in many ways not like our human fathers at all. He cannot be manipulated. He will not cave to injustice. He is not abusive. He is not selfish. He will never push his children away. So Jesus says, approach your father in heaven as a father. Approach him first, we see, with humility. Approach him with humility. In verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 6, we read Jesus say this, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Friends, what child who knows the love of her father and wants to be heard by him screams from a megaphone on a street corner about what she has to say? Surely none. Surely none. But the child who knows her father's love and wants to speak with him goes to him privately, quietly, even humbly to say, Dad, there's something I need to talk to you about. And so Jesus gives us this instruction in verses 5 and 6. That we are to go into our, our own rooms, close the door behind us, so pray to God privately, in secret, so that our father who is in secret will reward us. Friend, do you want to be heard by God in prayer? Do you desire his attention? Do you desire for him to give regard to your conversation with him? Well, then come to him humbly, as Jesus says, seeking him for his own sake and not your own, for his reputation, for his will, not your own. And Jesus promises that your father in heaven will not reject his humble child. Approach him with humility. He is your father, but also approach him with confidence. We're to approach our father in heaven with confidence. Now, human fathers are prone to be distracted. There's always work to be done. There are always sports to be watched, especially on Master's Sunday. There's always a pot about to boil over. There's always oil to be changed. It is not uncommon to hear from little voices in my own house, Dad, Daddy, Dada, Daddy, Dad, 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 hey, Dad, before I finally answer, what? 
only to hear, can I have a glass of water? (laughs) Roman pagans in Jesus' day thought of their gods like their distracted and sometimes selfish dads. And in their prayers, they would throw up many words in in rapid-fire repetition to persuade their gods, to, to hear them, to get their attention, to say somehow, I am worthy of your attention. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Christian, your Father in heaven is not so busy that he cannot hear you. Neither is he so arrogant that he needs your flowery language to stroke his ego before he will listen to you. He is your Father who loves you, and who knows what you need, even before you do. So, Jesus says, approach him with quiet confidence, knowing that you never have to fight for his attention. You never have to fight to to get him to listen to what you need. God is our Father. And the, the, the first respect in which we pray with perspective is to recognize that he is our Father, that he cares for us. We are to approach him with humility and with confidence. So friend, when you pray, have a right view. Start with a right view of the father that God is. Start with a right view of the father that God is. Now, many of us have been blessed with good and loving earthly fathers. And it is not difficult for us to approach God as a father because we know the love of a caring father. But some of us have grown up with with abusive, neglectful, Uh, harm-inflicting fathers, fathers who have abandoned us, fathers that that we may not even know their names, fathers who we were afraid to to speak their name because of consequences that, that, that may come. And it is hard for some of us who grew up with fathers who did not love us well, who did not show the love of God the Father to us. It is hard for us to sometimes approach God the Father as a father. But friend, let me encourage you not to use that as an excuse Don't let the the bad examples of your earthly fathers keep you from approaching God, your heavenly father, with confidence. Know this morning that, that God, our father in heaven, is not at all like our earthly fathers. He has all of their strengths and none of their weaknesses. He is perfect. He is loving. He is kind. He is good. He knows you. He cares for you. He wants to give you what is best for you. He wants to give you his best for you. And he desires that you come to him with confidence. So friend, when you pray, begin with having a right view of the father that God is. But then Jesus goes on in the second half of verse nine today to show us the second uh, respect with which we pray to God with perspective. We are to pray with a view, with a perspective to the holiness of God. So we're to pray to him as to, with respect to his person, he is father, but also with respect to his holiness. He alone is holy. Jesus says in the second half of verse 9, he says, Hallowed be your name. Now that sounds very King Jamesy, doesn't it? And it kind of is. Hallowed be your name is an archaic way of saying your name alone be revered, be regarded as holy. One translation says your name be honored as holy. Holy, And that's a helpful word choice for us here, I think. What does it mean then when we pray for God's name to be honored as holy? What does it mean to pray with a view to the holiness of God? Well, first of all, we recognize the holy existence of God. The holy existence of God. 
This means that when we pray, hallowed be your name, your name be revered, your name be regarded as holy, we are reminding ourselves that God is different than we are. He exists in an, in an entirely and supernaturally other way than we do. The word itself, holy, means set apart for a special purpose, even also separate and untainted by sin. When Isaiah the prophet had a vision of God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, he hears the heavenly creatures around the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This perfectly Holy God, this thrice holy God reveals his holy name to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. He says, I am, I am. That name, often discussed and totally unique, means that God is the God who is. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is completely other. He is completely different. He is supernaturally greater and far beyond anything that we know or, or, or even as we exist. He is holy by nature. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying with a view to the holiness of God, that he exists in a holy way, completely differently than we do. But also, when Praying, hallowed be your name. Help me, Lord, to revere your name as holy. We are recognizing the holy character of God. So not just his existence, but also his character. Not only ought we to remind ourselves that God is absolutely transcendent, that he is above and beyond all that we can see and touch and experience, but also that he is totally perfect in all of his ways. God's very existence is far above our own, but so, friends, is his character. We could learn, we, we could here even substitute the words personality or reputation for speaking of God's character. To say that God's character is holy is to say that he does not think or act like we do, but rather quite differently and far better. Again, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, where the Lord appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, showing him his glory, God says to Moses that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's character is Holy. When we are vengeful, God is merciful. Where we are exacting, God is gracious. Where we are impatient, fathers, God is slow to anger. Where we are fickle and flippant, God overflows with covenant love and faithfulness, he says. Where we hold grudges, God is forgiving. And where we overlook and encourage and even engage in evil, God is just and punishes wickedness. His character is completely unlike ours. There is none other like our Holy Father in heaven. And when we pray to him, we should first ask that he remind us of the fact that he is not like us at all. We're to pray with a view to his person. We're also to pray with a view to his, his holiness, that he alone is holy. So friend, when you pray... To God, your Father in heaven, pray for a full understanding of God's holiness. 
Pray for a full understanding that God is different than you, far above you. He is transcendent. He is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all the time, all at once. He's not like you. He is far greater. But certainly, Christian, there's a tendency in us, in mankind, is there not, to want to make God like us. We know that he's not. But we tend to want to make him like us, to make, or, or even to make ourselves like God. The 16th century reformer John Calvin said this, The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge, that is a perpetual factory of idols. The human mind, stuffed as it is, with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. And it labors under dullness and is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. And daily experience shows that the flesh is always restless until it has obtained some figment like itself with which it may vainly solace itself as a representation of God. In consequence of this blind passion, men have almost in all ages since the world began set up signs on which they imagine that God was visibly depicted to their eyes. And John Calvin's not just talking about the idols that we make with our hands when we try to think of God in, in human ways. He's not just talking about graven images that sit on a shelf or in a shrine in your home. He's even here speaking of the way that we conceive of God wrongly. That somehow he is like us. That, 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 that he's limited in his knowledge. That, that he is limited in power. That there are some things that we don't have to do if God doesn't so will for us to do them. We hear Calvin, like Jesus... In scripture, when he says, hallowed be your name, is encouraging us to honor God as holy as we come to him in prayer, recognizing, friends, that he is nothing like us at all. We're to pray with a view to the person of God. We're to pray with a view to the holiness of God. Thirdly, in verse 10, Jesus shows us that we're to pray with a view to the purposes of God, that his kingdom and his will are best Jesus says in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus here instructs his disciples to pray for the purposes of God to be done on earth, specifically through his kingdom and his will. He says, first, ask God to grow his kingdom, your kingdom come, he says. We know from reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the kingdom of God was a significant, if not primary, aspect of Jesus' own teaching ministry. As soon as Jesus is baptized in Matthew's Gospel, he is then taken into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And there in the wilderness for 40 days, he withstands and rebukes the devil. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, there we read him saying this. So says, uh, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the concept of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, two terms we would use synonymously, is referred to in the Gospels over 150 times. That's somewhat significant. In our previous study of Matthew uh, in uh, 2016 and 2017, 
We saw Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God through parables and through his preaching. And there we defined the kingdom of God as this, the redemptive rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the redemptive rule and reign. That is the saving from sin, rescue, mission, rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. But to pray for the kingdom of God to come, as Jesus instructs us to, is to pray not just for God's redemption through Christ, but also to pray for God's authority and dominion over the souls of men and women to come. God's kingdom does not come without God's authority. It doesn't come without his rule, without his kingship. So we pray for his kingdom to come, and we also pray for his authority to reign in our lives. To pray, God, your kingdom come as it is on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray that God would rule on earth even as he does in heaven, which is to say, perfectly. God, bring your kingdom, rule in this place, perfectly. Jesus says, ask God to grow his kingdom. Have a view to the purposes of God in that way, but also ask God to do his will. Your kingdom come, Jesus says, your will be done. Now at this point, we begin to press into the heart and mind of God. We're asking God to do what he desires most. Your will, God, be done. Frequently, though, we approach this idea of the will of God with some uncertainty as though we cannot know what the will of God is for our lives. We often pray, God, show me your will. Show me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me the course of action to take. Tell me what decision to make here in this circumstance. Now, friends, those aren't necessarily wrong or bad things to pray, but we do often pray to know God's will about matters of life without submitting those prayers to what God has already clearly said his will for our lives is. Do you desire to know what God's will for your life is? He has graced you with 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, to share that with you. Ultimately, Christian, the will of God culminates. Certainly, God's will is to us here. In his word, but the will of God culminates in this, in the reconciliation of all things to himself through Jesus Christ. That is where everything in history is headed, where God makes everything right through Christ, where he rewards those who have placed faith in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. And in Christ, he judges those eternally who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, who have not repented of their sins. That is where everything is headed to a day when God makes everything right through his son, Jesus. And friends, this applies to you personally in your salvation from sin, in your rescue from the grip of death, and in your restored relationship with God through faith in Jesus. More than anything else, God's will for you is that you be right with him through faith in Christ. You don't believe me, that's okay. We can look at God's word. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going, to, I'm going to roll through four passages of Scripture very quickly. These, are, uh, the, these won't be on the, on the screens behind me, but you have the references in your worship guide, so you can go read them this week. But just to show you that God's will really is your redemption, really is your salvation, really is that, that you would turn from your sin and, and, and trust in Jesus as your Savior, I submit to you this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, In him, as in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us, catch this, the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Through Christ, God has revealed redemption, has revealed salvation, which is the mystery of his will to make everything right. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is that we give our lives as, as, uh, in sacrifice to Christ. An act of worship that is holy and pleasing to God. And as we worship Christ, giving our lives to him as Lord, we are able to discern what the will of God is, which is that we would grow in holiness more and more each day. Paul, again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, says very succinctly to them, uh, to the church in Thessalonica, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Christian, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Your sanctification. Sanctification, that's a big word. Sanctification means being made holy, being made less sinful, being made more like Christ. God's will for you, Christian, is to look more like his son, that you would trust the father more, that you would trust him completely, that you would hate your sin more each day. Children, that you would obey your parents with joy in your hearts. Young people, that you would pursue uh, holiness in your life, even as Christ was holy. Senior adult, that you would pursue Christ's purposes in your life as you disciple those who are younger than you, as you use your resources and the years you have left for God's own glory. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes to the church there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The will of God is for you to be saved, for you to recognize the deadliness of your sin and rebellion against him, to trust in his son Jesus who gave his perfect sinless life on the cross in your place, who was raised from the dead so that you might be reconciled to God that he might place in you, friend, the promise of his own Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to make you holy, to change your heart's desires to match his. So to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is Christian to pray, God, save sinners. Turn their hearts from sin to seek your face, to trust in your son. Help the world through the preaching of the gospel to know that you are God, creator of the universe, father to all mankind. Show, Father, the world the deadliness of their sin, the doom of their rebellion against you, God. To pray your kingdom come, your will be done, is to pray, God, show to men and women and children of all nations the truth of Jesus' death, which pays for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. God, give lost people faith in which to trust their lives to Christ. Grow your kingdom, do your will, and do it perfectly in us and through us, just as all of it is done perfectly in heaven. And while we gladly tack on our hearty amens to that prayer, we rarely actually stop to recognize what else we are praying when we pray, God, do your will in my life. Yes, God's will for the lost is that they be saved from their sin by trusting Jesus. But his will for the Christian, for the, the redeemed man or woman, is that they would be sanctified, as Paul says in First Thessalonians. That they would look more like Jesus. 
Do you know what God's perfect means of, salva- uh, of sanctification is for you, Christian? Do you know how, how God works holiness in your heart? It's through hardship and through suffering. It is through sickness and poverty. It is leaving you in the fire long enough to melt you entire that he, entirely that he might purify you, purify you gloriously. And so we pray, God, work your will in me, but don't let me get sick. Please, please make sure we never run out of money. God, stop me from hurting. Fix these problems. And when we stay sick and poor and hurting, we blame God for not hearing our prayers for his will. Now, that is not to say that if you pray for God's will to be done, he's going to fix all those problems in your life. Very often, Scripture says you pray for God's will to be done in your life. He will put you in circumstances and in situations where you will have no one and nothing else to depend on but him. And in that is sanctification. In that is your growth in holiness. It was pointed out to me this week, the inverse relationship that there is to our confidence for what God wills to do in our lives and the things that we actually pray for. For instance, we pray often for things like health, finances, family issues, but we pray with little confidence about these things. God, if it's your will, but I know it might not be, would you heal Aunt Carol's ingrown toenail? God, if it's your will, and, and I know it might not be, could you just you know, uh, help us out a little bit financially this week and uh, fix this problem with this coworker that I have? We pray about things with very little confidence that we know God cares about and, and takes care of. And yet we pray so rarely for our own sanctification, even through suffering and difficulty, because we know God will answer. So we have little confidence that God can do things like fix Aunt Carol's uh, ingrown toenail, but we have much confidence that God will actually work out our sanctification. And do you know how I know we have much confidence that God will work out our sanctification? Because we don't pray for patience with our children, knowing that God will give us ample opportunity to practice and grow in the discipline. Every time I pray brothers and sisters, for patience with my children, that I might look more like Christ, love them more like Jesus, be more patient with them, even as God in heaven is patient with me. He gives me tons of opportunity to practice patience with my children. So I don't pray for patience that much. We don't pray, likewise, to gain control over our lust because we know God might convict us to confess our failings and our sins to others. We don't pray for God to make us more generous with our finances because we know he's likely to show us all of the frivolous and temporary things that we spend our money on instead. We don't pray to be made holy because oddly enough, we have all of the confidence in the world that God will actually answer that prayer. To pray with a view to God's purposes for his kingdom and his will comes at the cost of our own desires. It comes at the cost of our own pursuits comes at the cost of our own authority to choose how our lives will go and what we will do. It is to look our good and loving father in the face and to say that we know what he has for us is best, even though it is often the hardest. And we want it anyway. And that terrifies us. Still, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Lord, grow your kingdom through the spread of your gospel in the world. 
Grow your kingdom in my home and in my children's hearts. Father, change the hearts of wicked rulers in oppressed countries to bring justice to the vulnerable. Use our leaders and our governors to do your will and to rule with justice. God, use me as your faithful and willing servant to do whatever, to go wherever, to serve whenever you call, because I want to see your kingdom and your will flow over every inch of this world that is so darkened with sin and death. It is to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even still, Father, in the darkest corners of my heart, still blackened by sin, painful as it may be to me, Your will be done. We're to pray with a view to God's person. He is our Father who loves us. We're to pray with a view to God's holiness. Only He is holy. We're to pray with a view to the purposes of God, that His kingdom and His will would come, would be done on earth the same way that it is in heaven. So friend, when you pray, pray for courage to want what God wants. I didn't say to pray to want what God wants. I said start by praying for courage to want what God wants. It takes godly courage to want what God wants for us because it means we're giving up control. It means we're submitting to him, to his rule, to his reign, to his kingdom, his will in our lives. And sometimes that's hard to want. So pray for courage to want what what God wants, that you might be able to pray with full faith that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Pray for courage to want what God wants, knowing all along that he will do, he will give, he will take away whatever is necessary in your life to make you more like Christ to purify your heart and your mind, to work out completely the redemption he began in you when you first trusted Jesus. Friend, maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. You don't know what it is to to pray for God's will to be done. You're still walking in your sin. You're still living in your sin. You're still separate from God because of your rebellion against him. But this morning, the Holy Spirit of God is working in your heart, turning your heart to see the truth of of who you are in light of God's holiness, that you have broken your relationship with him. And it is dawning on you this morning, the, the grand truth, the beautiful truth that is that God sent his own son to die in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins and to be raised from the dead so that you, if you would just trust in Christ, place yourself at the foot of, cro- of the cross and to make him Lord of your life, that you would be saved, that God's will would begin to be done in your life as you are made right with him this morning through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning, friend, you who don't yet know Jesus, who are not yet a Christian, Maybe you who thought you had been a Christian for a long time, but are realizing this morning you never really have trusted Jesus that way. This morning, I would ask that you would pray for courage to want what God wants. That you would ask God, God, make me bold, make me courageous, make me brave enough to say, I want, I want you more than anything else. I want you, my Father, my Holy Father in heaven. I want your will to be done in my life because everything that I've done has been vain. It's been pointless. It's led to nothing. I want what you want, God. Because I know you're better. I know you're greater. I know that you're good. I know you're my father who loves me. Maybe this morning you need to make a decision to follow Christ for the first time. And in a moment, uh, we'll have a time of response. As we sing a song together as a church, you may, uh, uh, God may be leading you to come out and, and come forward. I'll be standing here at the front to, to greet you, to talk with you, counsel with you about how you can have confidence in your salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ. A healthy and growing prayer life begins by praying with the right perspective. 
Know to whom it is you pray, Christian. It's to God, your Father, who loves and wants his best for you. Approach him in his holiness, knowing that he is not like you, but he is ever so good and perfect. And ask him, church, to work his purposes in your life and in your world knowing he will often use hardship and suffering to shape you and to mold you and to use your growing trust in him as a consistent and confident testimony to the saving effects of the gospel to a watching world. As we endeavor to pray well as a function of our knowing God, let us pray with the right perspective.